You're listening to the Refined Hippie Podcast. Hi, everyone. I am your host, Rebecca Henson. This is my podcast. I am so happy you're joining me today. A few announcements before we get started. The Low Country Veg Fest is happening this Saturday on Hilton Head Island, October 19th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. This is a super, super fun day. It's the third year I've attended. There will be tons of different vendors from around the Southeast set up. Uh, tons of different food vendors, drinks, apparel, essential oils, different nonprofit organizations will be there, Sea Shepherd, Mercy for Animals. So you'll have an opportunity to learn all about these organizations and the amazing work they're doing for the animals and the environment. There will also be several different speakers. The Joyful Vegan will be speaking. She is a strong animal rights activist who's an award-winning author, podcaster, uh, cultural commentator, and has a very strong uh, Instagram presence where she does a lot of videos and posts a lot of really great information. Also, Gray, an emerging artist who merges activism, urban style, and hip-hop from Atlanta will be there speaking. I'm really excited. I'm not familiar with him, so I can't wait to hear what he has to say. The weather this time of year is so absolutely amazing, so it's a perfect time to be outdoors and, you know, try some yummy food, perhaps learn something new, and you certainly do not have to be plant-based vegan to enjoy this event, so do not be intimidated. If you aren't, it is a day just filled with, you know, love and compassion. It's super family family friendly. There are lots of activities for the kids. There is a little train that goes around the park that is super fun. And yes, I have taken the train ride. <laughs> so come on out. It's going to be a great day. And the second thing that I want to talk about is a platform I've already talked about before, but I'm going to do it again because I'm so passionate about it. It's called Tipalink. This is a platform that I think can really help change the way creators on the internet get paid. So if you or someone you know is a blogger, podcaster, YouTuber, author, writer, artist, musician, really anyone creating some type of content that they're posting on the internet, this is for you. Tiplink lets your supporters tip you money. So if they're enjoying and finding value in what you're doing, they can give you a little boost. There are some platforms out there right now that require subscriptions. I, for one, wouldn't want to ask anyone to subscribe for something else. I have so many different subscriptions at this point. Um, but at the same time, this doesn't have to be all or nothing. So this tippling could be an additional stream along with subscri subscriptions, up to you. But it allows supporters to tip you money when they want, how much they want, how little they want. Uh, I have it on my website, so if you're enjoying this podcast and the information that I provide on my website and Instagram, you can give me a little boost, a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars, whatever. Every little bit helps when one is trying to create useful content to share with others, essentially for free. <laughs> so simply go to therefinedhippie.com, click the gold coin in the bottom right-hand corner to give a little tip. I think this platform can really, you know, revolutionize the internet. So go to tipalink.com to learn more and see how you can implement it onto your site. So today's guest, we almost lost the audio for this. 
Uh, we did it remote. My guest is from is in California, and we used a platform um, that is for remote podcasting. But something happened, and the audio was not there when I tried to upload it and do it. Actually, last week this was supposed to be last week's episode, but it is now this week's. <laughs> but we were able to save it, and I am super excited because our conversation was great. So I was really disturbed when I thought that it might have been gone and we would have to to re-record but it is here so my interview with Dr. Renee Thomas who is a doctor out in Loma Linda California she is originally from Australia but now is a senior resident and lifestyle representative in a family and preventative medicine residency combined program out in Loma Linda we get into all kinds of fun stuff she got into nutrition after her dad was diagnosed with cancer when she was about five years old. So luckily for her dad, her his doctor at the time brought up some of the new research that was coming out in the early 90s showing the link between animal products and cancer. So her dad went down this whole rabbit hole, like we do sometimes, and researched and read everything he could and decided that going plant-based was what he wanted to do to help keep the cancer away after he had already done traditional uh, chemotherapy. So the whole family became plant-based. And that is when her, you know, passion and knowledge of the power of nutrition began. So we talk about her life being a plant-based vegan early on and why she decided that she wanted to get into medicine We also talk about lifestyle medicine, what that exactly means, how she implements it into her practice and interacting with patients. We chat about the peer-reviewed published research that shows just how powerful a plant-based diet is in preventing and often reversing chronic illness. We get into the blue zones, what they are, where they are, and what they entail, as well as the Adventist health studies, Loma Linda, the medical school structure, as well as her passion in empowering people to optimize their health through improving their lifestyle choices in an evidence-based fashion. It was a great interview. You can easily tell how excited she is about this information and getting it out there and just how caring of a doctor she truly is. So without further ado, here is my interview with the super passionate Dr. Renee Thomas. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invite. I really love being invited on people's podcasts. It's fun to chat with like-minded people. And, you know, if it helps just one person, my work is done. Totally. You've done a lot of podcasts, I feel like, haven't you? A lot of interviews. Um, I think it depends who you're comparing it to. I've done a lot compared to what I did maybe a few years ago, but definitely not a lot in comparison to other people. Well, but I enjoy and appreciate every single one that I get invited to do, and I always try and fit them into my schedule. Totally. So I appreciate it. I mean, Thank you. it's all relative, I suppose. <laughs> and you are <laughs> on the other side of the country. I'm in my pajamas right now. So um, you're in California, and I am getting ready for bed, <laughs> which is pretty fun. <laughs> Um, but for those who can't tell, who are listening, you are not American. 
I'm not American. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm rapidly losing my no. Australian accent, but I am originally Australian. Um, but I have my husband with a very strong Australian accent to kind of counteract <laughs> me. So I think I'm somewhere in the middle. But uh, no, I'm originally from Perth in Western Australia, mm. which most people have never heard of. It's on the west coast of Australia. And it's a, it's the smallest capital city pretty much that we have. But it's a beautiful place. And I highly recommend anyone visit wow. it. So how long have you been in California? I moved to California in June 2017, so just over two nice. years. Nice. Well, what do you think? I love it. Yeah. So I visited California multiple times. I made numerous attempts to try and move here and then finally managed to make it work out. So I love California. I absolutely love hot weather. So <laughs> where too. I'm living right now is perfect for me. It is summer, like 10 months mm. of the year. And I am in a very happy place. I love the people in California. I love the opportunities that have come to me since I've moved here. I love my job. I love my workplace. Yeah. I'm pretty happy to be honest. California is <laughs> amazing. I was there last year visiting one of my best friends who is British. Um, and mm. she's upset. I mean, one of the reasons she moved there was for the weather. So she would never live mm-hmm. back. I mean, when it was time for her to leave England, which obviously I would think England has worse weather than Australia. I mean, Australia has pretty good weather probably too. But um, she was like, I'm done with this place. Mm-hmm. This is just, I need to be somewhere warm <laughs> and sunny. Yeah. Yeah. So where I grew up actually has pretty similar weather to Southern California. And there is so many British expats or like British immigrants, whatever they want to be called, that come to Perth because the weather's great. It's like beach, sun. It's fantastic. So there's so many people that are British there. It's great. And I mean, you're probably similar to my British friend who like everybody that she uh, comes in contact with, like immediately when she opens her mouth, they're like, oh my gosh, where are you from? (laughs) Do you get that all the time? <laughs> it, you know, it's it's so funny because I think in moving here, I was like, oh, they speak English. I'll be fine. And then there's been so many times where I've said something. And as soon as it's come out of my mouth, I was like, oh, no one says that here. <laughs> and it's just been the most awkwardest thing. Or I'm like, oh, like, especially even like, like being in medicine, so many drug names are pronounced differently. And oh. I'll just say it. And everyone's looked at me like, you idiot. That's not how it's pronounced. Oh my <laughs> so God. Or we just have some random saying and you're just like, oh, why did that just come out of my mouth? So, and yeah. And the fact of um, being, you know, in a fairly similar country and then, yeah, as soon as you can usually get one or two words out, a sentence, nope. Where are you from? <laughs> how long have you been here? But, you know, in a way it's been kind of nice um, because, um, I can be a little bit shy, to be totally honest, and um, it really helped me make friends because as soon as I started talking, people would come over and be like, I heard your accent. Where are you from? And I like got to meet a lot of people I'm now friends with simply because they heard that my voice was a little oh unusual. Oh, my gosh. So, that's awesome. Yeah. It's good. And everyone here seems to like Australians, so that's Everybody also great. loves Australians. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. I mean, first off, y'all's accent is amazing. I don't think – the American <laughs> accent is not that special. I mean, it's just not. <laughs> Pretty much any other country is better than us. But Australia is one of the best ones, I think. I mean, so, yeah, that's a great way to meet people. <laughs> nobody nobody comes up to me, you know, like if I'm somewhere not in America, and they're like, oh, my gosh, where are you from? They're like, ah. Oh. <laughs> 
she's from America. <laughs> Sadly. That's funny. That's hilarious. It's it's super strange for me because um my mom originally, her family is Eastern European. Ooh. And so my accent in Australia actually stands out as a little bit not right. Oh, <laughs> and, whereas here I sound completely oh, Australian. You're so, Australian. Australian. so that's been kind of nice. Yeah. But I can't go anywhere. I can't even be in my own country without people being like, where are you from? I'm like, I was born here. I just sound a little bit funny. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah. What's like the what's the most um like Australian thing you say? Like what is a super Australian I don't know, saying or you know? You know, I think what I can think of, and it's actually funny because my husband's from the East Coast and mm-hmm. even we disagree about things. There's definitely like mm-hmm. East Coast, West Coast language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And something I grew up saying was using the word heaps to like exaggerate something. So for uh. example, like it's heaps good. Terrible, terrible grammar. But that's what I grew up saying. And occasionally my like inner 14-year-old will slip out and I will say it. And it was funny because one of the attendings that I work with used to work in Africa with Australians. And he said that once they came running and they were like, you've got to come, there's heaps of lions. And he said all he could imagine was just this giant heaping pile of lions. And so whenever I see him, he always teases me about it. So it's quite amusing. I would say that's probably oh, one like of the most it. Australian things that has come out of my mouth. Um, so even my husband doesn't like it and he's Australian, let alone being uh, in a different country <laughs> and using a word that's definitely not used anywhere outside the West Coast of Australia. So Yeah. And people just look bad. at you like heaps, heaps of what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that's it's cool. also terrible grammar to boot. So it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm from the South, so there's a lot of bad grammar here. <laughs> so, you know. Nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I, whenever I interview people, you mm-hmm. um, might know this because I know you had listened to a few of my podcasts, but I like to talk about people's origin stories, as I call mm-hmm. it. So um, I read a little bit on your website, actually, of why you got interested in nutrition and medicine, um, mm-hmm. and it had a lot to do with your dad. So tell tell me about that. Yeah, so it's pretty it's pretty crazy, and the more I learn about the story, the more I even think about the story, it becomes even more crazy to me, but it didn't seem that crazy at the time. But basically, when I was five years old, my dad was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and I actually only found out last year that it was metastatic testicular cancer. I interviewed my dad for my YouTube channel, and he was like, oh yeah, I had like liver mets, I had lung mets, I had bone mets, and I was like, what? what? I literally never knew this. Um, so yeah, my dad had metastatic cancer uh, around the time of his 40th birthday. So pretty young. Um, and he did undergo typical, um, uh, chemotherapy with an oncologist as you would for having cancer. Most people would do that. Um, and I totally support that side of it. But what was really cool about my dad is he had a family medicine doctor that said to him, have you thought about what you eat? And he was kind of like, you know, typical young guy, like, not really. Why would I? And so he was like, well, you know, this was early 90s. And he said, there's a lot of research coming out that's relating red meat to colorectal cancer. And you already have metastatic cancer. And the colon is a very common place to get metastatic cancer or another secondary cancer. And he's like, well, we know that link. I wonder if it's linked to any other cancers. And so he just kind of recommended that dad looked at some of the research and kind of the right person to say that to my dad, I think has read the entire library in my hometown. 
So he basically (laughs) went to the library and read every single article that he could on nutrition and cancer. And I'm going to mention this now because it'll come up later in my story, but things like the Adventist health studies, a lot Mm. of the um, kind of plant-based physician pioneers that we think about, uh, Caldwell Esselstein, Dr. John Mm. McDougall, Nathan Pritikin, a lot of these kind of names that a lot of people know that had research out already in the early 90s. And so he read that very compelling, very convincing evidence. You know, I was only five years old at the time. The doctors are saying, you know, you may not live to see your daughter graduate high school, you know, and it's a scary time. So he made a very dramatic overhaul. Um, Whilst he was getting chemotherapy, my dad did juice fasting, um, water fasting, those kind of a little bit more alternative treatments at the same time as traditional medicine. So adjuvant therapy, um, Mm -hmm. not replacing typical medical therapy. And then after that transition to a completely We called it vegetarian at the time, but Mm -hmm. what would now be known as a vegan diet and very much a low-fat, starch, uh, whole food, plant-based nutritional pattern, which was completely not the norm at the time. Um, To put Mm -hmm. it into perspective, soy milk was only available in the Asian supermarket. Almond almond milk didn't even come to my hometown until about 2017. Um, There was no such thing as, you know, vegan cheese or yogurt. Yeah, or yeah. any of those things. No heat and eats, nothing. There was this one store that used to be an hour away from my house that sold like soy prawns and we used to get them for like someone's birthday. Oh. Like <laughs> definitely very different to the availability. And, you know, that was when we would say go to a restaurant and it would be like, do you have oh. a vegetarian option? And they would give us a plate of fish. And we're like, no, oh it's not gosh. quite it. And then they would say, well, we've got spinach and ricotta pasta. And it's like, oh, we don't really do that either. <laughs> Honey, um, you know, we'll go with the flow. And it definitely, um, I try and put this out, you know, to making it a sustainable thing. It was not 100% perfect. I know as a kid, I definitely ate ice cream occasionally and things like that. It was not 100%, but it was very much, I would say, at least 95 to 99% what we would consider to be like a whole food, plant-based nutritional eating pattern, Um, which is pretty cool. Um, I was a massive daddy's girl. As soon as my dad did it, I was like, well, if dad's going to eat that way, I'm not going to eat anything that dad doesn't eat. And I also, at the time, I remember being really scared of getting cancer. Um, The year before my dad had cancer, I had a uh, great uncle pass away from cancer very young. And so cancer was very scary for me. Um, And knowing that dad was changing his nutrition to prevent cancer, that for me was enough. I was like, I don't want cancer either. Dad's not going to eat these foods. And so I transitioned. And then my mom pretty much transitioned as well, because it was like, well, I'm not going to be a short order chef and cook different meals for everyone. So the whole family did that from the early 90s and pretty much stayed that way for the rest of my life. Don't get me wrong. I kind of joke, you know, teenagers sometimes experiment with drugs and alcohol. I definitely ate some fast food and things that I probably shouldn't have. (laughs) You experimented with fast food. (laughs) But uh, it never sat right with me um ethically yeah. I knew a lot about the animal welfare ethics from a very young age as well um oh. and environmental consequences of what we eat so it never really sat with me but I definitely tried as a teenager felt rubbish didn't really like it didn't like the taste of it didn't enjoy the food you know I say to people I've never eaten a hamburger there's many things that I haven't done wow. um but yeah so, so just lucky. tried to have a pretty 
pretty healthy outlook. And that was kind of combined with positive outlook. I think my dad is the most optimistic, happy person you could ever meet in your entire life. Um, I can explain that very recently, unfortunately, we both fell off our bikes and he had an AC joint separation and his attitude was, well, at least we had a great bike ride. Like seriously, you you cannot break this guy's spirit. Um, so yeah, positive attitude, eating really well, um, having really strong family values and connections and exercising regularly. Exercise was a thing of all my families. I was a competitive gymnast. We walked all the time Often, you know, I used to dance ballet and my parents, you know, I'd ride my bike to ballet like being active was a huge part of our life and I think it's kind of crazy because that really constitutes a lot of what we now call lifestyle medicine which is what I practice so very early start in life which is very exciting for me. I mean that is just crazy to think that there was a doctor in the 90s yeah out, mm-hmm. yeah and that your dad was lucky enough to have him as his doctor. <laughs> like, yeah exactly and you know the best the best part of the story is dad will be what year are we in I think dad will be 65 this year and has remained cancer-free. He's on no medications and has zero health issues. It's pretty inspiring. I mean, that's super inspiring because I don't, I mean, I'm sure you know the stats, but, you know, after someone is diagnosed with cancer, I I mean, what is, what's the percentage that they're going to have, you know, in the next five or 10 years, some other cancer form? I mean, maybe not in that, you know, location, but it'll pop up somewhere else, you know? Exactly. It's really crazy. And every cancer has different um, percentages. Every, you know, we kind of look at five year mm. survival, five year, you know, a lot of cancers are relapsing and remitting um, or again, primaries coming back, mm. secondaries met. So it's really hard to give a percentage. Testicular cancer mm. in of itself is actually one of the better ones. You can present with end stage testicular cancer and be very responsive to chemotherapy. So don't get me wrong. Someone could maybe discredit everything I'm saying and say that, you know, it was just the chemotherapy. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> the biggest problems that we have um, when we think about it from a holistic standpoint is we know that um like uh chemotherapy itself is actually a carcinogen you know it's listed on the world health organization as a known carcinogen we know that but like all medicines it's a pros and cons balance you know we know that it treats cancer maybe it'll cause cancer again in 10 years but that's 10 years of extra life that you've gained by having the chemotherapy so it can kind of be that's one thing that's a little bit scary the other thing is when you have a cancer diagnosis you know for the next five seven ten years you're undergoing multiple ct scans pet scans staging imaging following and a lot of radiation is going in the body and again we know radiation um, whether you get radiotherapy or just the radiation from so much imaging is also carcinogenic so the fact of having cancer increases your risk from that perspective, as well as the intrinsic fact that having cancer once, your greatest mm. risk factor to have cancer is having a previous cancer. So the risks mm. are pretty great. So for my dad to have been now 25 years without any further cancer, I think is above average in the statistics of what you would expect for someone having cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, how you could not think that. Um mm. How old were you when when that happened? So I was – I'm dating myself. I was five. So it was in, (laughs) yeah, 1994. You're dating yourself. I'm older than you, girl, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, we're in our 30s, so, yeah. yeah. It's – it's all the same after that. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It was a big milestone to get my head around. <laughs> I know, I know. And then it's just all downhill from there. But um, so, yeah, you've been mostly plant-based your whole life. Like there are not many people, I mean, 99% of us who are plant-based now 
did not start out this way. You know, like I was your typical, I mean, I ate the typical standard American diet for sure. I mean, I would go to McDonald's, uh, before school every now and then and get those like, uh, what were they like McMuffin sausage? Oh gosh. Disgusting. I mean, I don't even want to say it. It just hurts my soul. (laughs) Yeah. So, so you mentioned lifestyle medicine. What, what is that? So lifestyle medicine is like the way I know it or Mm -hmm. how I interpret it is it's not alternative medicine, correct? It's basically incorporating traditional medicine with like more of a holistic approach or what, how would you say it? Yeah, exactly. So the reason that we say it's not um, alternative medicine is because it fits into the category of what we would call um, peer-reviewed evidence-based medicine. Mm. So everything that's incorporated into lifestyle medicine pretty much is based on randomized controlled clinical trials and published research um, or long-term uh, ecological studies like Adventist Health Study, Nurses Health, Nurses and Physician Health Study, all those kind of big players looking at nutrition, um, looking at the aspects. So there's kind of your six pillars of lifestyle medicine. There's different uh, like variations on this, but generally we look at nutrition, which with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine focuses on a whole food uh, plant-based nutritional pattern, uh, looking at regular exercise or physical activity, being physically active throughout the day, whether that's just in your day-to-day life or whether you have dedicated exercise, um, kind of avoiding substances we know to be harmful, tobacco and excessive alcohol, um, managing stress, uh, getting a good night, uh, good quality, quality sleep and having healthy relationships and healthy connections in life. So that's kind of your main pillars of what we would now call lifestyle medicine based on the evidence that, you know, there's all different numbers. And I hate sometimes quoting statistics and percentages because they always seem to change, but you're kind of looking right. at something about 80, People per- love them, yeah, though. probably yeah. 80% of chronic disease we feel can be prevented, optimized, and often even reversed by mm-hmm. uh, optimizing these six lifestyle behavior factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if for a job, like you're, you're obviously a medical doctor mm-hmm. um, and you went through, I mean, I would say Australians medical school is similar to American kind of setup. I mean, do you, I don't know. Do you know the, the differences? It seems like American medical students go to medical school an awful lot more. They're always there on the weekends and nights. And I did not do a lot of weekends and nights. Oh, really? <laughs> so I think they work more hours than I did. Um, I also think the exams are much more intense, but from a basic perspective, and in Australia, it really does depend what medical school you went to. So we still have uh-huh. undergraduate medicine in Australia, which is somewhere between uh-huh. five to seven years straight out of high school. And then you have uh-huh. kind of the similar model to America where you do a three or four year bachelor's degree or undergraduate degree and then go on to do your postgraduate medicine, which is what I did. So I did a similar model to America, but then um, from what I understand in America, most people do two years preclinical and two years clinical, which is very similar to most medical schools in Australia. But again, on the flip side, mine was very practical heavy. And I picked it for that reason because I hate studying and I hate lectures so much. So my medical school, we actually started clinical in the first year of medical school and were completely clinical by the second year. So I did three years, about three and a half years of clinical and roughly half a year of clinical. And then all our um, sort of preclinical work was, uh, we got a rubric at the beginning of the year saying, you're going to be examined on all all of this at the end of the year. And it was all self-study, which 
worked fantastic for me. I'm very intrinsically motivated. I prefer to do things on my own time and it worked really well for me. We had a very high failure rate of people that kind (laughs) of left everything to the last minute. So it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. So I would say mine was probably halfway between uh, some medical models in Australia and the American model. So does it does it also lack the nutrition education side as the medical or as, as American does? I would say on average, probably. I think yeah. that um, I was pretty lucky in a number of ways because I get asked this question all the time. So I my my first clinical year was that we call what do we call like a me, uh, merit select private. So typically, so in Australia we have a public and private sector of medicine. Um, everyone gets public uh, health for free. And then if you buy your own insurance, you have access to private. Private is usually faster and a little more fancier, but that's about the only difference. Um, Mm. And most medical training happens in public systems. So you will typically be a medical student in a public system, resident, registrar, and do all your training in the public system. Um, But we had the option to have a merit select if you were a high scoring medical student or um, had something going for you. And I was actually picked for that program. So I did my first clinical year in a private hospital and that hospital had had a really high emphasis on nutrition, which was surprising. And, you know, when I've heard other people talk about it, it didn't sound like they got a lot of nutritional training, but I got a lot and it was amazing. Um, And then following that, because nutrition has always been my interest, I I actually wanted to be a dietitian, not a doctor, but I couldn't get into dietetic school. So I ended up applying for medical school because I was like, eh, close what? enough. Yeah, kind of, what? Kind of hilarious. So Don't really know. Didn't really. That would seem the reverse to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I also asked a lot of questions and I always say this to people because you will be surprised how many doctors know about nutrition, but they're not always forthcoming with it. So I always be that uh-huh. person that'd be like, oh, like say we're learning about, I don't know, diabetes. What does nutrition have to do with this or this condition? What does nutrition have to do with this? What should our patients be eating? And I asked a lot uh-huh. of questions and then I would kind of hear certain doctors talking to their patients. And if they mention nutrition, I would ask, hey, can I rotate with that doctor? Because I want to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And so I got a lot of nutrition training in medical school, but it definitely wasn't core. And I think that's kind of the question that everyone wants to know is why isn't nutrition core in medical training yet? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least I think over here, it just has a lot to do with money. I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, I don't know when it comes down to it. It's just, that's not where the money is. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. And yeah. as I see, sometimes the prices on medications that I prescribe to my oh patients, my I'm like, wow, okay. I There was one, honestly, I prescribed a medication the other day and I, I do believe it was indicated. It was for uh, treating uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, Rifaximin. It was $2,500 yeah. for two weeks of what? treatment. The patient didn't pay that. The insurance company did. But I was like, Oh, it's wow. so broken. I mean, the system is so messed up. I mean, we could have a whole separate podcast on that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So that I was mean, a little mind blowing for me. And just, you know, I see some of the procedures, like some of the scans that people get are four and a half thousand dollars. And I'm like, oh, wow. I, I kind of feel guilty when I like prescribe these things. So I know. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times the doctors don't know. And I, you know, this is funny that you say that when it's not funny. But when I, everybody who's listening probably knows that I was really sick. Uh, a few years ago with ulcerative colitis and uh, Mm. I was in the hospital at one point for like three, two or three nights. And when I came out, they put me on some kind of drug. I don't, I I can't even remember what it was, but um, I feel like it was Eucerus maybe. 
but that I could be wrong. So mm-hmm. don't quote me on that. But when I left, they were like, yeah, you know, it'll probably be like $5 or whatever. And then my husband, obviously, like I could not go pick it up. He goes to pick it up mm-hmm. thinking it's going to be $5 and it was like $1,000. <gasps> and it was like, oh, wow. what? Yeah. Like something crazy. And, um, I mean, and then <laughs> that, that we had called the, the doctor at the time and talked to his nurse or whatever. And they were like, Oh, well maybe, you know, you have to fill out this form. I mean, we went through my insurance and they never, they still would not pay it. Like I, mm. it was a huge fiasco, but, um, oh. but yeah, just like crazy. And this is why I feel like lifestyle medicine or preventative, uh, I guess you would call it preventative, preventative medicine as well is so important because, I mean, if you have to have open heart surgery, how the heck much is that going to be? $50,000 or something? Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, and I, I mean, I get it all the time when people in their minds and we can talk about food and the cost of, you know, eating plant-based or something uh, later, but people are like, oh, well, it's just like so expensive. And I mean, it's not if you're just eating the basics, but at the same time, like I would rather spend a little bit extra money right now and not have to have, <laughs> you know, these really invasive, expensive procedures in the future, right? So it's, you're kind of saving money in, yeah. in my, in my way. I think the thing that I, that attracts, that attracts me and continues to inspire me to practice lifestyle medicine is that when you have the, you know, when you sit down and explain it, it can be very empowering to the patient because really mm-hmm. what you're doing is teaching them how to optimize their inbuilt human function. And it, it can release people from that tie to having to come to all the doc- to the doctor all the time and being in that situation where it's like, well, I'll do whatever you say, doctor, or being tied to prescription medications, being tied to procedures, you know, the next surgery, the next medication, the next this. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of very scary. Um, you know, I'm sure you know as being a patient at one time. I've definitely mm-hmm. been a patient myself at times. It's very scary. It's very frightening. You feel completely out of control. You often have mm-hmm. no idea what's going on with your body. You don't know how to fix it. No one else seems to know how to fix it. You feel like kind of an right. experiment a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and it can be scary. Whereas with lifestyle medicine, it's like, well, we have great evidence that if you incorporate these tools and I will teach you, I will show you, I will help you. I will hold your hand. I'll see you all the time to work with all that hard stuff that we call, you know, motivational interviewing and behavioral change. (laughs) That really hard stuff. Like I'm here to help you, but let's give the power back to you. You know, you get to choose what you eat. You get to choose how you sleep. You get to choose how you exercise. You get to choose how you de-stress and connect with others. Don't get me wrong. Easier said than done, but I feel like it's a glimmer of hope for a lot of people that feel like they're trapped. Right. And they want some type of guidance because, I mean, certainly people go to their doctors and ask them, you know, well, is there something that I should or shouldn't be eating or like, how should I eat? And, you know, I feel like a lot of times what I've heard is that doctors will not give nutrition recommendations or, you know, dietary changes because they automatically assume that the patient is not going to do it, but they're not even giving them that option, you know? Yeah. And I think, and that's something that I've really tried to do all the time when I kind of explain what I do, because I do work in a traditional family medicine practice at the moment. Like I'm I'm a family and preventive medicine resident. So I spend a lot of my time working in a traditional family medicine setting, whether that's outpatient or literally working in a hospital as a hospitalist on call. Like I do traditional Mm -hmm. medicine work. But the way that I incorporate lifestyle medicine is to put that option on the table. And 
that statement that you said, patients won't do it, is correct some of the time. It is. Mm -hmm. I definitely have people where I start to talk about nutrition and they definitely (laughs) cut me off like, no, thank you. I don't want to. Just give me a pill. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that I have to be sensitive and open to that. And that's the whole part about motivational interviewing is, well, out of those six pillars, what resonates for you? Perhaps someone Mm. doesn't want to change their diet, but they may be open to quit smoking. Maybe they're open Mm. to exercising. Maybe they're open to meditation. And it's really finding what's motivating for them at that time. But I think the point that you're getting to is I want to put all those cards on the table. So say someone comes with high blood pressure. We know that stress management helps with blood pressure. We know exercise helps with blood pressure. We know low sodium plant-based diet helps with blood pressure. We also know that antihypertensive medications help with blood pressure. And so it's unethical for me to leave any of those out, I feel. Even the medication part, even though I feel like that's a last resort and that's not my first choice, for me to just not even mention medications isn't ethical. So I tell my patients, these are all your options. What resonates most with you to improve your health? Because at the end of the day, my job is to help people improve their own health. And if it's in a way that doesn't look exactly how maybe I think is the best way or the gold standard, as long as I've told them they've made the choice, understanding the choices, a real patient-focused approach, then I'm okay with that. That's my job done because that's what I was there for. I'm not there to persuade people to go plant-based or have some kind of agenda or, you know, get everyone off medications. That's not my job. But I want you to know all these options that you have available and then you pick whichever resonates best with you and I'll be here to help you out with that. That's kind of how I see my job. Yeah, and that's so empowering is to, you know, give them, your patients, that option. I mean, nobody ever told me there was another option. And when I asked if there was another option, they said, uh, you know, like you could try, you could try changing your diet, but Mm. it's probably not going to do anything. (laughs) Exactly. And I had to learn everything on my own. (laughs) Like I had, I did, like I, I researched, I watched videos, I read books, I, you know, did different nutrition programs and that's ultimately, and, and it was a lot of trial and error. I mean, I did different diets that, I ended up in the hospital basically because of, and then, and yeah, I mean, I was, I would tried paleo, like, because at that point I was just desperate, you know, like I, it didn't really align with who I was, but I was just like, well, whatever, you know, I'll just try this. Um, and it just made me worse. So, uh, and then at that, at that time, I mean, I was in the hospital and I was like, I am not doing this anymore. I'm going plant-based. Like, yeah, don't give me any more fish. I don't want any. <laughs> and it's so tough because I think that does go back to what you were talking about medical school is there is this big gap where the power of lifestyle medicine, really, it's a very new specialty. The idea yeah. of plant-based nutrition or just any nutrition really contributing to disease is pretty new and it just isn't in the curriculum. And so doctors really, in my opinion, I think they are well-meaning and they really are telling patients everything that they know to the best of their knowledge to try and help. Right. I don't I don't really believe that no. stuff when they're like, oh, nobody was malicious yeah, and they or didn't there's want a gender or kickback or pharmaceuticals. Like right. I definitely don't get any money from pharmaceuticals as, an, as a resident. Trust right. me on that. But a lot of my colleagues <laughs> don't know anything about nutrition either. And so I definitely remain optimistic. I definitely feel a huge shift. Like at Loma Linda, we have the residency curriculum in lifestyle medicine. They're definitely a different people. Dr. Clapper's trying to get nutrition in medical school. You know, I know Dr. John McDougall's been voting every single year to try and get it in California law. You know, they're trying to get CME credits for nutrition with doctors. They're trying to get it in medical school. They're trying to get it in residency. Australian, uh, sorry, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is exploding. I really think it's coming. I think it's just not there yet. Right. 
Oh, I th- it's definitely happening. And these people are not giving up. So mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> so they're going to keep trying. And I mean, it is going more mainstream. It's like every day you hear. And, you know, I'm not a big like celebrity person or anything. Mm-hmm. But by all means, if it's going to get the message out there or, you know, make it more common that like people are going plant based and, and people, you know, uh, being open about the benefits that they see, then like, so be it, you know, like, exactly. It's It's definitely exploded. And I think that's what gets me so excited. Like I often joke, I didn't meet another plant-based person until I was nearly 20 years old. Um, so that was a good 15 (laughs) years of being the weird one. And now (laughs) honestly, every second restaurant has a vegan option. There's a million different things in restaurants. Like everyone knows someone, everyone's tried it. So the fact that it's becoming so mainstream, but more, for my excitement, more is the explosion in the medical literature, the journals yeah. coming out, you know, the the new journal, what is it, the International Journal of Disease Reversal, the, all the publications that are coming out, randomized controlled trials like, uh, you know, my friend from New Zealand, Dr. Luke Wilson, did a randomized controlled trial with whole food plant-based. There's so many coming out, all different types. I work with the Sherazides, luckily, at Loma Linda. They're coming out with Alzheimer's and brain health and plant-based nutrition. Like there's just so much evidence for lifestyle medicine. Literally, I would say the last five years exploding. And if it continues, it's going to be really hard to ignore it in the medical system. And like you say, we kind of know the medical system's pretty broken for chronic disease. And this is kind of like the shiny promise of hope that's going to fix the chronic disease disaster that, you know, America, Australia, the UK has kind of fallen into. So... Yeah, any first world country, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> even, you know, even developing countries now are getting all the same things. I it's know. Well, and that's what shows. Yeah, I mean, that shows the impact of the Western diet and how bad it is. I mean, when it's, you know, any of these countries that become more uh, wealthy and then they want to eat like us, and then what happens? They get sick like us. So it's terrible. Exactly. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. So, so you're in Loma Linda. Which, for mm-hmm. those who don't know, is part of uh, is one of the blue zones. Mm-hmm. Did you end up in Loma Linda because it's a blue zone? <laughs> That's definitely one of my biggest things. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, with my yeah. dad's story, kind of the circle around was uh, I was very, very familiar with the Adventist health studies. I did a lot of research and mm-hmm. um, presentations in medical school on the Adventist health studies. Uh, the blue zone material definitely very, very interesting. Dan Butner's work is amazing. Um, so they were kind of big motivators. Um, I wanted to go somewhere that cared about lifestyle medicine and actually a smaller part of it that most people don't know that was very motivating for me is what Loma Linda calls whole person care. I didn't Mm. like the idea. I felt very much towards the end of medical school that the more and more patients I was seeing, everyone... it was almost like I was getting in trouble for being compassionate and caring about people, you know, for, you know, bet, lack of better jokes, but, you know, knowing my patient's name of their dog or knowing their kids' names and, you know, actually caring about them. And Loma, Loma oh. Linda has a big <laughs> oh, no. model where we try to see the whole person, you know, where do you live? Uh-huh. What's your family situation? You know, what's your education? What do you have access to? What's your job? What are you famous for outside of the medical system? And they do love rounds in the hospital, which is where we go and see patients and talk to them. You know, the, the first question is, oh. what are you famous for outside of the hospital? What does everyone know you for? And just that oh. kind of care was really important to me. I wanted to have relationships where I, you know, I didn't want my patients to come into my office and leave feeling rushed or not listened to. Um, 
Probably my favorite, favorite quote from Dr. Michael Clapper, who I interned with as a medical student. He said to me, you can't always cure, but you can always care. And that has literally been my motto for medicine forever. Um, And just being able to have that relationship was really important to me. And I feel that that is extremely important to Loma Linda. Um, And so that was another part of why I wanted to be here. Um, I wanted to do family and preventive medicine and lifestyle medicine. And they were the leaders in that field. Um, They created the family and preventive medicine combo program. Uh, Preventive medicine was definitely grounded in Loma Linda and lifestyle medicine was as well. So kind of wanting to be at the innovators of, what I wanted to practice. Uh, yeah, definitely the perfect spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the blue zones, for those who don't know what the blue zones are, um, that term is like, well, it, it, I guess it first appeared in, what was it, National Geographic? Yeah. Was mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, in the early 2000s. Um, but it's really taken kind of a, long, a, a while for it to become so mainstream. I mean, now I feel like everybody's at least heard about it, whether they know what it is or not. Yeah. Um, but so explain to those who don't know what the blue zones are. So they're the countries that have, um, the most, sorry, I I can't really say country because Loma Linda is not a country. The areas in the (laughs) world that have the greatest percentage of centenarians uh, or people living into their hundreds. And the most important part is they're not just living to a hundred, you know, with modern medicine, we can keep pretty much anyone alive with a ventilator and artificial nutrition, (laughs) Uh, but they're living over a hundred in good health. And so they went and studied mm. them. Um, I always forget them when I have to say them off the top of my head, but I know there's Sardinia, I know, I know right? there's Okinawa <laughs> in Japan, uh, I know there's Loma Linda in California, somewhere in Costa Rica. Uh, and they basically went to these places to find out what are they doing? Why are they living long and living well? And so they kind of came up with something called the Power Nine. Now, I have had a little bit to say because a couple of these I don't necessarily agree with um, and I'll explain why, <laughs> but they're talking about moving naturally, so regular physical activity, having a purpose in life, having a reason to wake up every day, downshift, relaxing, some kind of de-stressor. Um, the 80% rule is often thrown. This is one, it's quite interesting because uh, having been to Japan, I never saw this, but maybe it was the places that I went to. It's supposed to be that you only eat till you're 80% full. I have never had so many oh. bowls of rice forced upon me than when I was in Japan. <laughs> it was literally like, how much rice can you eat before you explode? So I don't know, maybe that's somewhere else. And, you know, some of their prayers before meals are like, let's eat. There's definitely no like, let's eat to we're 80% full. It's like, let's eat to we're well full. So I don't quite know where that one came from, but uh, yeah. eating predominantly plant-based or plant Plant, as they call it in the blue zones and that's definitely throughout all of them with legumes uh beans chickpeas split peas legumes all of those kind of forming a big base of the diet uh wine at five is a common one uh not part of loma linda uh the loma linda seventh day adventist faith actually doesn't have alcohol included at all so that one's irrelevant to loma linda um having your right tribe friends family connections putting your loved ones first and then a sense of belonging they're kind of the main nine uh attributes that they found that contributed to living living longer living better mm-hmm. I mean it's basically like the mind body spirit approach, approach which is yeah what I call exactly it, you know? exactly yeah um so the the plant-based lifestyle uh most of so Loma Linda is actually a hundred percent plant-based but some of the other ones are about like 95 or 90 percent but even the meat that they do eat is like nothing what you know 
if somebody was say, if somebody in America was trying to be ninety percent plant based and then eat ten percent meat, I mean, it's not even comparable the type of meat that they eat over there. You know, yeah, not over there, but exactly. Yeah. And oh, to be honest, so roughly. So all of Loma Linda is considered to be a health-conscious population. If we're talking about uh, nutrition, it is definitely more health-conscious in what mm-hmm. they eat. Um, the reason that the Adventist health studies are so interesting is because most people follow the spiritual connection, friends and family. Um, most people don't drink caffeine. They don't drink alcohol and they don't smoke. They're all physically active to an extent. Most people have a purpose. Most people de-stress. They have the Saturday as the Sabbath. But only about 50% of the population are plant-based. But like you're mm. saying, the the non-plant-based, uh, on average, it was only eating animal products about 10 to 12% of the diet. So that's meat and dairy and eggs, um, about 12% of the diet of a non-plant-based Adventist. And that equated to roughly three kind of small servings of animal product, uh, of meat, sorry, per week. So that's kind of your non-plant-based mm-hmm. Adventist. And they're the ones that generally uh, stepwise do the worst in their health, but still living 10 years on average longer than the average American. Um, And then the further towards the plant-based or the entirely uh, vegan kind of sector in the Adventist health studies where they consume zero animal products, um, they're the ones that get the stepwise increases in health um, beyond and above the average uh, great lifestyle of an Adventist. They get even further benefit, often, you know, four or five years extra on top of that. um, And significant significantly less diseases, especially things like diabetes, obesity, uh, some autoimmune conditions, some cancers, um, and heart disease. Right. And they're not on the drugs that most Americans are on. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I definitely have patients yeah. on medications, but uh, yeah. a lot of well, them are some, not. Well, yeah, some, but sure. yeah. I mean, I think it's like, what is it? It's like 70% of Americans are on one pharmaceutical and uh, I, I, these could be wrong. Uh that they're close at least. And then 50% are on like two or oh, more drugs. Yeah. I mean, that's I just totally, staggering. I would totally amounts. believe it's it. Crazy, totally believe you know? it. I would say, you know, like you say, the typical uh, Adventist patient that you see, you know, I might see someone that's 95 and their only medication that they take is half an aspirin because someone told them it was good, um, oh, you know, and they're in great yeah. health. Whereas <laughs> they saw exactly, exactly. Yeah, like Whereas, <laughs> um, you know, my family-based clinic is in San Bernardino, which is a completely different population where I may see patients in their thirties on eight, 10, 12 medications daily. Um, it's insanity, you know, medications for blood pressure, medications for cholesterol, medications for depression, exactly. You know, then medications to counteract the side effects of the medications, mm-hmm. you know, maybe one makes them nausea, so they're on an anti-nausea medication, mm-hmm. you know, maybe one medication made them anxious, so then they're on an anti-anxiety medication. It's just, you know, then they can't sleep because right. maybe they have attention deficit and then they have to take sleeping medication. Right. <laughs> and, you know, then maybe that causes stomach pain and, you know, maybe you're on a reflux medication oh and you have to, you know, you've got chronic pain. So, you need to be on an acid blocker oh. because of the ibuprofen. It's just, it's insanity. Oh um, it I really just, is. I just want to give them a hug and be like, can we change your lifestyle? <laughs> they need a hug. But I think um, the question you were alluding to before that I think is really important to address because San Bernardino is an underserved um population where, you know, you can lose 20, 30, 40 years off your life just by having a different zip code to living in Loma Linda. Um, But what's important to address is that the majority of these lifestyle changes, of course, with adaptation, 
can be done by those in a low socioeconomic setting with poor resources. You know, a lot of, you Mm. know, and even simple things. And I kind of laughed at myself, but I used to recommend going for a walk. And then I kind of learned it's not safe to walk in San Bernardino. (laughs) None of the patients are going for a walk. So I was like, okay, like that's not an option. And, you know, it's 110 in Loma Linda sometimes. No one wants to go for a walk. So it was kind of adapting that to where you are. You know, can you exercise in your living room? Can you go to the mall and walk around? And same with nutrition, really providing. um, So I... I've mentioned this so many times. I'm always nervous when I mention it because it's not done yet. And I always get emails being like, is it done yet? It's not done. I'm working with WIC, which is the women's and children, oh, no. um, where to put out a plant-based menu for a week using WIC resources and also making it even without uh, WIC food stamps, uh, making it to be $4 or less per day uh, for a meal plan. And that is very doable, um, especially, uh, you know, I went to all the supermarkets in the United States. I went to all of the supermarkets in San Bernardino and looked at the prices of the foods um, and really forming a nutritional pattern based on whole grains, uh, legumes, uh, fruits and vegetables, and small amounts of nuts and seeds. And it's definitely doable on less than $4 a day. And I have, you know, I have seen amazing results in my patients that have very, very limited resources. They just have a lot of determination um, to make things work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the, the biggest hurdle is, you know, these food deserts. And I grew up in a place that is probably considered a partial food desert at this point. Oh, wow. uh, there are grocery stores and they do have some organic produce, yeah. but all the restaurants are mostly fast food. Um, you know, the standard places, McDonald's, Taco Bell, and any local restaurant has no healthy options. You know, the only salads on their menu are probably just iceberg lettuce. <laughs> and now I live two miles away from a Whole Foods, so I can go and pick mm-hmm. up anything I want at any time. So there's my mom who still lives in my hometown and I speak about her often because she takes my advice. She's like the only person in my family who takes (laughs) my advice. And um, (laughs) she had been pre-diabetic for several Mm -hmm. years and uh, eventually like her blood work was so terrible and she came to me and she was like, okay, I'm ready to make a change. So I helped her and in a couple months we uh, reversed her pre-diabetes and she had the most perfect blood work she had ever had. Um, and so now she, and there's a couple other people in my hometown, ladies in my hometown who are plant-based and, uh, but literally there's like five of them. (laughs) So, um, and there are some people who are trying to be on board. Like I have some other people in my family who live there who are, who've had some health issues and, you know, it's taken them a while to kind of like, I guess, see the light and, but, but their issue now is, well, you know, I don't know how to eat this way here. Like, you know, I don't know what to do. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. um, And and trying to guide Mm -hmm. them. The education component is so important because you can tell, you know, you can tell anyone what to do, but if it's not even conceivable to them, they don't know how, they don't know. It's such a, like just talking about nutrition, like you say, it is a complete overhaul. And for me, it's actually easy to understand because if someone told me tomorrow that I needed to start eating meat, I wouldn't have a clue. And I always try and think of this when I'm explaining to patients how to go plant-based. I wouldn't know what cuts of meat to buy. I wouldn't know what type of animal to buy. I wouldn't know where to buy it from. I wouldn't know how to season it. I would not know how to cook it. And I wouldn't know how to eat it. Like I would be a disaster. And I try and think about that when I'm telling people how to change their nutritional pattern because it probably feels the same way. And I have people ask me questions that to me just seem so obvious. Like, you know, things like, is 
is brown rice vegan? Like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, okay. Like, you know, what? let's go with that one. Or like just crazy, you know, just crazy stuff. Like, and obviously a lot of it is media driven. Like, you know, can I eat a, you know, heaven forbid I tell someone to eat a banana. I feel so bad for their, their press has just gone crazy. Everyone thinks they're either full of sugar or they're going to die of potassium poisoning. Oh, I, I don't know. Even know oh my banana, God. But honestly, wow. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of education, a lot of resources, a lot of counseling. I try and see people very regularly and be like, what's working? What's not working? How can we work on this? How can we get mm-hmm. you well? It's a big shift. And I always say to people, you know, let's have a two-year time frame of getting well because you can't, most people can't change overnight. And it's like, it's way too overwhelming. Right. It's like, let's just do one thing. And right. very often I will just do one thing. Like, what can you do this week? And we'll catch up next week. Mm-hmm. Kind of going. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the biggest thing is, you know, letting people know that it doesn't have to be all, all overnight. I mean, I didn't get to where I am overnight. I mean, most people don't, it's a gradual kind of thing of, and, and it, yeah, it's a huge learning curve. I mean, for, especially when for, you know, older people who've been cooking a certain way their entire lives, I mean, they have no idea that you can use coconut milk or <laughs> almond milk or all these other things to make the same dish you yeah know? it's actually really funny I know my uh, my eastern European grandfather saw me eating once he's like what are these foods you eat <laughs> it, was so, it was just so <laughs> funny like you know I know they always say that thing like I'll oh, eat what your grandparents used to eat but you know it's for some things it's just you know what what is kale like what like I remember he said he, I was uh, eating kale <laughs> once and he said to me because they decorate the fruit and vegetable store with this why are you eating it Ah, <laughs> it's just so funny but uh yeah it's definitely a big shift and change for people and I think as well and one thing I really really like is uh Dr. Dean Ornish's spectrum and knowing that everything is just a spectrum of health you know from say you are the the fast food processed food soda drinking person you know any step that you take in the right direction towards whole food plant-based nutrition is going to improve your health. We know that. If you just stop drinking soda and still eating your terrible diet, you'll probably get better, a little bit better. And then it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, what's the next step now? And just moving forward and forward. And not everyone wants to go all the way and they're quite happy with the level of health that they're getting at at that point. And I think that's probably been one of the best counseling tools for me is like, let's just start moving in the right direction. And if for you, you achieve the level of health that you want with a few things that maybe aren't exactly ideal, cool, you're happy, you're not diseased anymore, why keep pushing? And I think that's kind of one of the things that gets left out. For, you know, people with severe disease, you know, big changes require big effort. But for your standard, typical healthy person, maybe they only have to go 50% of the way. And I think supporting that and not becoming dogmatic or judgmental or anything is a big part mm-hmm. that gets left out of it. Don't get me wrong. Super passionate about animal welfare. Super passionate <laughs> about the environment. Right. Super passionate about your health. And I right. want you to go a thousand percent all in. Let me dive in with you. But that's not realistic. Right. And I learned that uh, as I kind of grow and evolve. You know, I'm still a young doctor. I've only been practicing for just over two years. Coming up to my um, right. sorry, I'm, I'm just started my third year. So I'm very young. I'm very new. Um, but I've definitely seen my practice growing and evolving with really trying to be what people need rather than trying to be what. I want. I think that was a big learning curve for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just trying to encourage people to eat more plants in general is, is like huge because most people don't eat 
nearly enough fiber. <laughs> oh my gosh, vitamin F. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like it's not uncommon for me to have patients that literally never eat fruits and vegetables. And for me, it's just mind blowing. Like I don't think I've ever gone a day without eating them. Maybe like if I was on a plane, yeah. or ill or I don't know. But like that's it's just crazy to me. I'm like literally, when was the last time you ate a vegetable? I'm like I don't know, like three months ago. Does a tomato count? I'm like, oh wow. Oh my okay. God. Like we got a lot of work to do, but yeah. it's fun. I love it. I, I you know I have zero judgment towards people I just want to be what they need so yeah and just being there to educate them and then you know you can give them the the information and let them you know take it or leave it kind of thing right (laughs) I think there's a big thing to you know they use the term um it's probably gonna slip my mind but like a patient set to approach more like a team Mm. attitude rather than like a doctor says hierarchy to patient type attitude uh you know that kind of patient-centered approach just uh shared decision making was the term I was looking for and it's not always realistic it's a challenge to think that you know you can spend as I joked before but waste your entire 20s at medical school and studying and then expect (laughs) to be able to have a conversation on the same level but if you can't explain something you definitely don't understand it that's always been my thing if I can't explain something to a patient I clearly don't understand it so just being able to provide all that education understanding resources all the things that we're talking about and then to make a decision together I think that's really how medicine's shifting rather than I tell you to do this you go away and do it and you know let's hope you get well it doesn't, Mm. doesn't fly with me no, no, me either. <laughs> um, so as far as like meat is concerned, mm-hmm. do you explain to your patients like why it's inflammatory or why it's not good for them? <laughs> yeah, I, I really, uh, my counseling and education is very tailored to the individual. So I definitely right. have you know, I have some patients that are physicians. I have some patients that are extremely educated researchers. And so the conversation I have with them is very different to say my patient that hasn't even gone to high school. So it really depends where we're at and how I'm going to word it. I always try and use the evidence that we have. None of this is opinion-based. Like I've mentioned even in this podcast, like I do care about other aspects of what we would call veganism. I never use the term vegan in my clinic. I never refer to any of that stuff because it's completely irrelevant to medicine and I'm here right. to help you with medicine. So I just want to kind of put that out there because otherwise they say, oh, you're agenda driven. Totally. Like, no, I'm just trying to tell you what the evidence says. So I always say to patients, look, you know, for, and it's usually you try and relate it to their symptoms. So say they've come in with a particular symptom. I try and relate the evidence that we have to that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps you're, you know, have you ever thought about what you eat and could that contribute to your uh, condition? You know, say they've come in, I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's say asthma. Asthma has a pretty strong link in kids with dairy. So it would be like, you know, have you ever heard any of the relation between dairy and asthma? See if they say yes or no, you know, you know, a lot of the evidence is suggesting that maybe trying to cut down or cut out on that could improve your symptoms. Would that be something you'd think about doing? And I can show you all the alternatives that you can have, you know, do you want to give it a try? That's kind of how I would put it out there. And then, you know, like you say, with red meat, Again, if I can correlate it to inflammatory condition, if I can correlate it to heart disease, high cholesterol, um, even weight issues sometimes, I uh, tend to not um, – I'm going to go on a total rant now. But uh, no, I tend to not <laughs> – <Do it. laughs> I'm very interested in coming more at a health at every size approach or a very uh, weight neutral approach. I feel like addressing weight is very 
uh, upsetting to patients. It's very unhelpful most of the time. And I do truly believe that when we optimize all the elements of lifestyle medicine, uh, most people will find their healthy weight. I feel like so many of my patients have come to me and they're like, you know, they've got a sore knee and they've been like, well, if you just lose weight, your knee wouldn't hurt. Or, you know, they've got a stomach ache and they've got diabetes and everyone just says, well, it's because you're overweight. You just need to lose weight. And often that can lead people to doing things that make them lose weight. For example, this crazy ketogenic trend, ketogenic diet do make you lose weight. They also send your cholesterol through the roof. So it's like (laughs) telling a patient to lose weight kind of leaves them to their own terms of just focusing on one thing that isn't really fixing any of the problems. And I say to my patients, okay, there's so many things that can lead to weight. It can be mental health. It can be, you know, trauma in the past. It can be inflammation. It can be the food you're eating. It can be chronic pain stopping you from exercise, or it can be not doing any exercise. There, you know, multiple diseases, multiple medications. There are so many things that contribute to someone's weight, even history of dieting. We know that the more diets yeah. you go on, the more likely you are to become overweight. So telling someone to lose weight, in my opinion, is almost unethical because it doesn't address any of the underlying problems that cause them to gain weight. So mm-hmm. I do talk about it a little bit, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I try and focus on, so going way back to your original question is yes, I do try and share all the evidence of preventing, uh, optimizing and reversing any type of chronic disease or even sometimes acute diseases that are linked to any aspect of lifestyle medicine and trying to work with the patient on what they can, can't, will, won't change to optimize their health. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, as far as like the dieting thing goes, mm-hmm. I mean, th- all these drastic diets are just not sustainable. And that's the difference between, you know, eating a whole food plant-based diet that you is sustainable if you're doing it the right way, as opposed to, you know, doing, I don't know. I mean, back when I was in college, there was this weird, uh, it was like the cabbage soup diet. Like (laughs) it was disgusting. It was literally just cabbage and water. I don't even remember. I did it, which I don't know why I was never, you know, I was one of these people who was always, I've always been the same size, Mm -hmm. but, but, but still in my mind, I'm like, Oh, I need to lose five pounds. Like so annoying. Um, (laughs) but but that's not sustainable. I I know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think, you know, one of the, it's, it's one of the biggest blessings and one of the biggest curses in medicine was the discovery of penicillin. Um, you know, fantastic. The fact that we discovered antibiotics, but I think that it really instilled the thought to people that you can do something temporarily. So for example, you have an, you have an infection, I give you antibiotics for a short period of time. Then you return to your previous lifestyle without Mm -hmm. the infection. And I think that that has really driven the way that people think about medicine and what makes lifestyle medicine challenging is it is not a cure for anything. It is a management tool. So if you reverse your diabetes, if you lose weight, if you fix your heart disease, if you reverse your autoimmune, in your case, if you reverse your Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, sorry, you have to continue doing the lifestyle choices to continue to remain disease-free, which is very different to the penicillin model. So with penicillin, that would be we go on a six-week diet, we reverse all our diseases, or we do a water fast, a juice fast, whatever intervention you want to do. But then you return to your previous poor lifestyle habits, eating badly, not sleeping, smoking, drinking, and eating junk food. 
But then your disease returns and that doesn't fit with the model that we previously thought about medicine. So it's really a revolutionary shift in the way that we think about medicine, I think. And that's kind of the core thing. I'm like, don't do anything that you can't see yourself doing in 20 years. Otherwise, your disease is just going to come straight back again and it's going to be a waste of time. And that's where the, the kind of slow transition works really well because it becomes a new way of life rather than seeing it as a diet or a quick fix or something or you know the the next 12 week challenge or the next diet or the next this or that whole 30 or whatever these things are there's so many I can't even keep counts of them there's so many and then when people tell me they're like oh I'm doing x y and z diet and I'm like oh great (laughs) like oh yeah I have to look some of them up they'll be like oh do you know this supplement or this diet I was like there's (laughs) way too much let me google that like seriously I'm in googling this diet because I don't even know what it is I know. I mean, this is why it's called a lifestyle. Like I can't imagine like this. It was gradual for me. And at this point, I can't imagine being any other way. Like I can't imagine the way I used to eat, which was not like, I mean, it was, it was just standard American diet. I mean, I didn't eat a ton. I I grew up eating a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, way more than the typical American these days, but you know, still meat and cheese I mean so much cheese <laughs> I like the staple American food is cheese it's cheese I know oh my gosh two foods that fuel Americans I think it's cheese and coffee <laughs> but cheese, yes the coffee cheese. is like not really how I grew up thinking of coffee it's kind of like this cream oh. and sugar and oil conglomeration oh cold coffee <laughs> I don't know I don't drink coffee personally but it's a definitely a, it's a different affair to what it was in Australia it's multicolored it's got cream on it it's called a unicorn I don't even know you know <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> it's basically dessert it's not coffee I'm it's sure it's delicious but <laughs> yeah 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 I don't I don't drink coffee but I used to drink coffee but the version of coffee that I drank was probably it was way over sweetened and <laughs> way too much cream and it was basically because I had I I was addicted to sugar <laughs> gotcha <laughs> like a lot of people <laughs> um so for on a typical day, like what what do you eat? What is your go-to like food? Oh, that's a good question. So I am one of those people that gets incredibly bored with food. So <laughs> I'm not a foodie at all, uh, like literally at all. I'm definitely a eat when hungry and then let me get on with my life. Like how quickly can I eat to then get on with my life? I don't really – like going out for dinner isn't really like a hobby of mine. Like I know a lot of people get really excited. Like I'm just not really a foodie. Like you want me to go hiking or go surfing, go on your boat, go swimming, like I'm down. Like that is me. Let me do something fun and outside. Eating, and eh, not so much. But – um. <laughs> I typically, I generally would say the majority of my diet would be what we would call a whole food plant-based diet. So mostly unprocessed whole grains, uh, beans, legumes, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. It's pretty basic, but I love cooking. I love creating. Um, I probably cook something different almost every single day. Breakfast is always different. Lunch is different. Like dinner is different. It's hard for me to say, but I definitely, um, I really follow, I would say similar to uh, like say the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, their power plate. Mm-hmm. So roughly, you know, if you looked at what I ate over the course of the day, roughly a quarter vegetables, a quarter fruit, a quarter whole grains, probably actually probably more like half whole grains. Probably I'm a bit of a whole grain eater, uh, maybe like an eighth uh, beans, <laughs> beans, chickpeas, all that kind of thing. And then I probably eat a lot more nuts and seeds than kind of your more low fat. A, lo- a lot of people kind of tend towards more high carb, low fat. Um, I'm quite slender by nature. And I think I need, I think I have quite a fast metabolism. So I need 
need a lot more calories than I can generally fit in my stomach. Um, so I probably eat a bit more nuts and seasons recommended for most people. Uh, but it works for me. And occasionally, you know, I would say five to 10% of the time I eat whatever I want. Uh, always, I, I don't eat any animal products ever, but I might have some vegan ice cream. I might go out to a vegan restaurant. Mm. I might have mm-hmm. some vegan products that, you know, fancy or something. I might bake a cake or a brownie, but I would definitely mm. say I would say 95%. Um, I'm actually really partial to white rice. Um, oh my gosh. My husband loves white rice. He loves yeah. It. So, but I, you know, and I always say to people, do as I tell you, not necessarily as I do myself. Uh-huh. I do, I do uh-huh. think there's something to be said for balance. I think there's something to be said to go out with your friends and have a good meal and enjoy their company and not mm. sit at, you know, I often uh, see people, unfortunately, that have disordered eating and it makes me really sad. It's like, it's sad oh. to sit at home on your own with the perfect salad, yeah. you know, go out with your friends and have a vegan burger. It's right. it's fine to do it every now and then when the bulk of what you're eating is nutritious. And I think that's yeah. the goal is to have that balance between what we know we should be eating, what we're eating and, you know, and life and enjoying mm-hmm. all aspects of life in balance um, and not ever feeling bad about it. So that's kind of, that probably didn't exactly answer your question, but <laughs> I just need so many different things. I just like a massive variety. I just, I can't even narrow it yeah. down. But definitely the whole grains, you know, oats, rice. I buy all the different types of flaked grains and make all different types of oatmeals. I love overnight oatmeal, porridge, mm. uh, muesli, oatmeal. which no one knows what muesli is in the US. I know what muesli <laughs> is. I love muesli. I like baked potatoes. I like hummus. Oh, I like yeah. all pretty much all fruits and vegetables so yeah nothing crazy just like food (laughs) yeah yeah me too um how far away is Loma Linda from LA uh, it depends on the traffic. So shortest time I've ever gotten there is 50 minutes. Longest time is like three and a half oh. hours. Um, but it yeah. is roughly, oh, roughly somewhere in the kind of hour to hour and a half uh, drive on average. Yeah. Um, there were – whenever I was there last year, the restaurants were amazing, obviously, which I'm sure they're amazing in Loma Linda as well. But there was one that we went to that was called like uh, Cafe Gratitude. Oh, I oh, there. That place is fun. I love that place. Oh my gosh. Um, what was the other one? Uh, well, there were a ton of them, you know, I mean, just California in general. And I love that like everything, every restaurant in California is, um, is by default, uh, organic <laughs> like everything's organic you know it's pretty it's a pretty uh organic friendly place which I, I love that's definitely another conversation but super passionate I will tell you a really embarrassing story so ever since I had my first car when I was 16 I had a ginormous sticker on the back of my car that said say no to GMO and I have been super passionate about that <laughs> for like my entire life my dad is a biodynamic avocado farmer just to put that in perspective how passionate we what? are yeah and biodynamic oh. Is next level crazy above organic. That's- next level crazy. I just learned about this because I learned about bio biodynamic wine. Yep, yep, yeah. It's next level. Oh my gosh, it's so next level. So wow, I love it. So it makes me very happy. Oh my gosh, so you love avocados, obviously <laughs> more than I do. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. It's pretty cool. Um, did you uh, did you see the Game Changers movie? So, yeah, I have not watched all of it yet. I am waiting for it to be on Netflix or digital because I 
I'm not the greatest at sitting still in a movie theater. <laughs> so I've seen <laughs> half of it. And then I. No I way. Kind of got, you got up in the, in the theater. No, I was at a conference. So in my defense, oh, I okay, okay, a preview okay. of it okay. at ACLM last year. And then gotcha. I was exhausted because I am on the trainees board and I had just been go, 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 go. And I was like, I'm falling asleep. I'm going to have to watch this when it comes out on digital. <laughs> and then I was going to go the other night and I was like, oh, I can't fit in the cinema. I'm just a little bit. Oh my I'm gosh. very enthusiastic about life is how I like to describe it. ADHD is probably how medical right. describes it. Um, but yeah, I'm not great at watching it. So I think when it's digital uh, I will definitely watch it but I have seen snippets of it and I have heard everyone talk about it and I am so excited it was actually uh when I was at True North as a medical student uh David Goldman was working on it and so I heard a lot about it before (gasps) it even started and so it's very very cool I am I really think that this film fills a huge blank especially that's in uh, the fitness, like the fitness community, you know, mm-hmm. I have a background mm-hmm. in uh, fitness and that is like a huge, like plant-based is not really a thing. I think for athletes, I think for men, not, not trying to be sexist, yes. but definitely right. for a lot of men, I think the film is very, very exciting. So I'm so glad it's out. I am so excited. Yeah, it's going to start streaming August 1st or no, sorry, not August 1st, October 1st. Um, and I think it's going to be huge. I'm so excited because, yeah, for for dudes, I mean, my my husband is mostly plant based. And I say mostly because he sometimes will eat oysters and shrimp uh-huh. and but I think he's he'll probably eventually come all the way over. And that's and that's fine if he does it in his own time. I mean, he came to this place on his own too. Like I didn't force, you know, I had already become plant-based and he just kind of naturally like moved on over with me. (laughs) Um, but like, and he is a windsurfer, um, a surfer, like, you know, a big, you know, a tall dude. And he always gets, you know, the quest, the classic question, where do you get your protein? (laughs) So, I am super stoked. That's, awesome. that's really exciting. And I think it's going to answer that question for a lot of people. I think that's a yes. really, really, really common question. So I'm pretty excited. It, yeah. If somebody asks that question again, I'm going to be like, just go watch the Game Changers. <laughs> okay. And then come back to me. Yeah. Uh, so in your spare time, you said that you like to serve, which is awesome. Um, but I also read that you were a qualified yoga teacher. Yeah. So just before I started my residency, my husband and I went to Rishikesh in India and became certified yoga teachers. So that was kind of fun. What? I have done yoga all through medical school. I, it was a lifesaver for me. Um, I actually rehabilitated from a car accident and then some weird undiagnosed neurological condition that I still don't even know as a doctor to this day what the hell happened to me. But sorry, I shouldn't say that word. Uh, What happened to me? Um, But (laughs) yoga was a life changer for me. It has helped me so much physically, mentally, spiritually, every single thing. And so, yeah, we went to Rishikesh, which is the original hometown of yoga and weren't in the most spiritual location ever. It was amazing until I got typhoid. That's also another story. But (laughs) But it was amazing. And yes, I am a qualified yoga teacher and I incorporate yoga into many of my patients' treatment plans, um, stretching uh, particular exercises, whether it be stress management, digestion, uh, reflux, uh, pain, all those kinds of things. It's really helps everything. It can help. Yeah, for sure. So I love that part of it. I don't use it as much as I probably should. Um, I don't teach classes at the moment because I work crazy hours, Um, but it's definitely something I'm really glad to have. And hopefully one day it will become a bigger part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I love yoga. So, um, well, cool. Uh, So what 
what do you have in store for the future? Like what's happening? You know, I have no idea. I really don't. And it's because when I came here, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I thought that I wanted to right. have a lifestyle medicine inpatient practice, much like True North Health Center. That was my goal. So that's the oh. water fasting, uh, whole food plant-based in Northern California. That was my goal. I really right. wanted to have my own one of that. That was not doable in Australia. And so I was like, I'll come to the US and I'll train and I'll open one. And then I got here and there is so much opportunity here that I have no idea what I want to do with my life I really don't like early (laughs) in medical school I wanted to do a lot of like mission type work going overseas I you know at one point even considered doing like general surgery because I thought it would be really helpful overseas really want to give back to underserved communities so and then just here there's so many different clinics opening finding that even just in general family medicine which I love way more than I thought I would have um I can practice lifestyle medicine essentially because it's the basic of chronic disease management so there's that there's people opening lifestyle medicine and clinics left, right, and center. There's new kind of regenerative anti-aging therapies. You know, through Loma Linda, people are going to Malawi and Africa and all different places, Guam and practicing. And then there's the research side of it. There's public speaking, there's education, there's social media. There's a million things. I think honestly, my dream job would be something, I get bored very easily, um, but I definitely (laughs) would love to have a job that's like maybe some research, maybe some academic time, maybe inpatient, outpatient, all different aspects um, with a focus on lifestyle medicine. I think that would be my dream career. But again, wow. I graduate November 2021 and we'll see what happens. So hopefully I can stay in the U.S. That's yeah. my first goal is locate job and stay in U.S. And then we'll go from there. Yes. Yes. Stay here. <laughs> and then I can come to California and visit you and my friend, my British friend, yes, Lucy. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So if people want to follow you, you have an Instagram that is uh, at Dr. Renee Thomas. Yeah, so um, I can okay. send you the links. Might be easier because my name always, yeah. my accent, spelling my name with a million vowels in it is always really challenging. Right. I always get laughed at at work when I spell my name about seven times on the phone. Uh, but everything pretty much <laughs> can be found on my website. That's probably the easiest way to find all the links to all my social media links yes. are there. And it's just drrenethomas.com. Um, I will send them all to you though. Awesome. Cool. Well, I appreciate it so much for you coming on and this has been awesome. So, um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thank you so, so much for having me and thank you for all the people that follow you and listen to this. I hope it was helpful. I hope it's what you wanted. I hope they got something out of it. And, you know, I'm always open to answer questions, help people out. I just love helping people like whenever someone gets something to improve their life if I am along with the journey with them that literally brings so much joy to me so thank you so much for allowing me to share what I'm passionate about and yeah I just really appreciate you and I appreciate everyone so thank you so, so much oh thank you yeah that's what it's all about is sharing the the care and compassion and the knowledge it's awesome so cool Okay, until next time, peace and plants. Love it. Isn't she so awesome? I wish all doctors had that same passion and compassion that she exudes, but I feel hopeful that the shift is happening and more medical practices will start focusing on the lifestyle medicine approach. And, you know, like she said in the interview, of course not everybody wants to take that route, but they need to be given that option. There are many out there that would like to take that route. They just need the help, encouragement, and guidance that goes along with it. 
So if you are wanting some help with nutritional and lifestyle changes, there are, of course, coaches that can help with that. I personally work one-on-one with clients, educating, supporting, and guiding them to make lifestyle changes to help them live happier and healthier lives. So if you're interested, please shoot me an email at Rebecca at TheRefinedHippie.com to learn more. As always, thank you so much for listening. You all are the absolute best. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and share with all your loved ones. And as always, my lovely friends, peace and plants. <laughs>